This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. Daphne, how's it going? I thought you were going to have a new intro. I'm not changing the intro. Um, it's very generic. Um, I think people probably find comfort in hearing you say the same thing every, at the opening of the show. All the podcasts I've listened to, they all have like their intro. I mean, ours is, like I said, very generic, but, uh, this is not what this, this is not what's going to make people either listen or not listen. Right. I mean, the content is what matters. Content is king. That's Um, right. And we have great content today. Yeah, I'm very excited about uh, about the about the, the the guest that we have on today. We've been receiving this week. I don't know what you thought. So we've been receiving a lot more messages of thank you and support. Um, it's been overwhelming. I am humbled. We are both humbled by. Yeah, I wonder if you know a lot of people went to the big meeting this this weekend. And I think you really value the neonatal community and everything, you know, that you can find. I also, um, I was, we weren't, we were not at PAS obviously. And then I am sure that there's this feeling that I've been wanting to have where you go to an in-person meeting and you start connecting with the people you, Mm -hmm. you've met Mm -hmm. on Neo Twitter. There's actual people on Neo Twitter that I, I have collaborated with all the way to publishing a paper and I've never met. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How crazy is that? Um, so that's that's going to be very exciting. But thank you for for sending all these messages. Mm-hmm. We're we're very happy with the direction the incubator is taking. Um, we're putting out a lot of good educational material on the neonatology review side. We've started the neonatal network on therounds.com. You can find out more information on our website about how to register. We're giving away basically. We're, we're giving away access to software resources to conduct research. Anything you need for research purposes will be available there. And we're going to open the grant application process for this first cycle on June 1st. I think we will have, we will have up to, we will have around $10,000 worth of grants available. And I mean up around because it might be more. Mm-hmm. for this first round and we're just very excited if you have ideas if you're a new fellow or a prospective fellow and you want to get a quick grant we are going to cycle through grants so fast meaning application starts uh june 1st uh grants are awarded august 30th and the money will come uh quickly so no no truncating your fellowship by 50% to get access to funding for research. You're going to be able to get this off the ground quickly. Do we want to remind people why what's cool about how we will pick? Go, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Go ahead. 
Well, um, we, again, we want the, the power of the neonatal community to, to drive <clears throat> what you guys think, um, is, uh, research that that should be funded. So we will have a, a voting process so that people have the opportunity to pick the projects that they um, are most interested in. Um, so we'll let the community decide. And that's and that's a reason to join us on the rounds, mm-hmm. even if you're going to be a, a, spectator. A, a spectator, which <laughs> I think is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But you will get to weigh in on all these ideas that are coming out and saying, oh, I want to see this funded. Oh, I want to see this project come to fruition. I want to participate and join the efforts in this project, right? Um, It will be such a cool, it's going to be a cool thing to see. It's going to start August 1st. Uh, You submit your application. We're going to have application process open from June 1st to July 30th. We're hoping to to catch a lot of new fellows or Mm -hmm. a lot of starting second year fellows who maybe, like we know when you have these front-loaded first years and you mm-hmm. got to start really your research tech year two um yeah this is going to be very helpful i mean i wish i had access to to that kind of stuff when i was a fellow so I'm yeah excited. i know i was uh i was using my book money for salivary swabs <laughs> <laughs> i didn't buy a single book tell yeah. you what <laughs> um yeah so uh on this note i think it's actually um fitting that mm-hmm. we are talking about research because we have um, the pleasure of having with us today uh, Dr. Ariel Salas. Dr. Salas is a board-certified attending neonatologist at the Children's Hospital of Alabama and an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. He has an MD degree from the Universidad Mayor de San Andres and an MSPH degree from UAB. He currently receives grant support from the NICHD to study the effects of human milk diets on body composition outcome of extremely preterm infants. His long-term career goal is to reduce the burden of postnatal growth faltering through novel translational studies and large-scale multi-center clinical trials of promising dietary intervention that optimize growth, reduce dysbiosis, and ultimately improve neurodevelopment. Um, Please join me in welcoming to the show Dr. Ariel Salas. Ben, Daphne, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, no, we're, we're very excited to have you on. And, and as we've mentioned in the intro, um, you, you, you grew up in Latin America, in, in Bolivia specifically, and, and then you, you went through schooling there. And my understanding is that you did your pediatric residency there as well, and then, um, and then came to the, to the U.S. Uh, my, my first question to you is what uh, prompts this departure from, from home? I'm always interested when people like myself leave home to come to the U.S. What is the motivation there? Well, let me tell you that it wasn't on the cards. You know, I, I wasn't planning to till the very last year of residency. You know, I went through med school with a plan of, you know, doing my residency in pediatrics and then eventually have a, a clinic, you know, and start seeing patients after training. But during my last year, I got the opportunity to um, do an observership here in, in the U.S. And it was just curiosity mostly. I wasn't really planning to do anything here. Just just wanted to see the system, you know, because at that point, during residency, I was reading so much about, you know, studies and things that and how things were being done somewhere else. And I just wanted to see it. And I mm-hmm. thought that was it. You know, it will be just, just a 
life experience and then and then go back to normal basically mm-hmm. but then you know i really felt that there was there was a chance you know that i should consider pursuing it because it was very life-changing experience i got to see such um, I had such a great experience during those. It was, I think, eight weeks or so. Where, where did you do? Um, where, where did you do that observership? I ended up going to Chop. Oh. For for just an observership. Mm-hmm. So so it was a very fulfilling experience. You know, I got to see a lot of things that I wasn't seeing during residency. And then I left with that idea. You know, well, maybe I should consider. You know, to apply for residency. Even though you know, I, well, not residency, really, just more training. Um, but then, you know, I had to go back to reality, right? So I just spent all my, uh, savings on this trip. Now we're going to have to start from scratch, you know, work really hard. So for that first year, so I ended up practicing as a general pediatrician for a year before even applying for boards and applying for fellowship. And I think that's, that's when I knew for sure that I wanted, I needed to do something else. Um, because it was very interesting to go from a very academic hospital, you know, where you have trainees, residents all around and teaching all the time, talking about new studies and things like that to the cold office with just uh, your registered nurse there, you know, helping you with the patients and yeah, yeah, no, nobody around you to, to explain why you're doing things. It's a very lonely and, experience. Yeah. Right. So, so while I was doing all that, I was studying for the boards and then eventually um, I, I took them, you know, and I, I passed the steps. And then at that point, I I said, well, maybe there is a chance to mm-hmm. apply for a fellowship. It was a bit different for me because I had residency training already. I was I had the opportunity to, to apply for a fellowship back then. I don't think that's an option anymore. Uh-huh. But I was able to to look for residency, uh, fellowship programs. Now, I have to admit that I actually met my program director through PAS mm. because I... I I was presenting some very basic study on hyperbilirubinemia right. at PAS, something that I did back home in Bolivia. So, so with that, you know, that put me in PAS, and PAS is sort of a melting pot, right? So everybody's there, and and then I was able to to connect with with him, that's, and you know, everything. That's great, and from there. and so then and so then neonatology was always in the cards for you, or or. How did that come about? Yeah, uh, I was definitely interested in in the field. I was I was in um, I was more into pediatric intensive care, I think. But then when I did that observership, I realized that I couldn't really deal much with that chronicity in the acute care setting. I think the, the acute care that I was used to back home it was mostly previously healthy children, right? Because the kids with current conditions they, they don't make it that long, so they don't really get to be seen in, in intensive care units. So my experience on in, uh, in intensive care was very limited. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in a very, you know, complex health system was very different to what I expected from, from acute care. And that's why I thought about neonatology probably as the best path. And I did have some research on it as well, you know. And I have to admit, that's one of the things that I think was very interesting for many people that saw me from coming abroad, you know, because I did have some, I was being interested in research. Somehow, you know, my last year of med school, I had to do this acting internship and back home in Bolivia, and I met this this guy that became my first mentor, I guess, that 
taught me just the basic of statistics, you know, yeah. just just t tests and chi squares, and I just got hooked and 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 research with that. And I would always, even though I was very busy clinically, I always have found time to to do some some small studies. You know, nothing big. You know, I did. I don't even mention those publications that I have back home because they were not peer reviewed, but. Uh, I was very proud of, of those things, but I find I think- that so interesting. You know, I think uh, you really got an introduction to, st- to, st- to statistics early on, and I feel like we do things backwards. We we say, okay, the trainees have to do research, get into research, and then once you're into your project, we'll do the statistics. And it's, it can be so daunting um, if you don't have even that like little bit of background. That's that's so cool that you got exposed to it so early. Yes, I think it helps um, just to know a little bit about it, you know, at the beginning. But then over time, you also start learning your limitations. And I think that's how I feel about statistics nowadays. I feel like there are things that I'm comfortable with, but I think there are things that you should just ask a statistician, by statistician to do for you. That's fair. Um, yeah. That was eye-opening from the MSPH program, I think, <laughs> just, just knowing your limitations. And it's and it's not just important for you to conduct research, but it's also important to be able to appraise the data that you're mm-hmm. reviewing, right? I mean, every, every project starts with the lit review. And if you don't know how to discern good data from corrupted data, and what I mean corrupted, I mean, some data are corrupted by confounders, right? Not that anybody is messing with the data. Correct. That's not my intention to say that. But like confounders, overfitting, all these concepts that are so important in statistics that are that are critical. Um, it's funny that a lot of the things you're saying are echoing what Dr. Carlo said on the podcast not too long ago. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very interesting to see this affiliation, uh, where you're hitting similar notes. I wanted to, to go back to Bolivia a little bit and, and I've never been to Bolivia. Sure. I don't know about you, Daphna, but what, and, and, oh, and, uh, 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 in a flight, that's all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, never... but I'm I'm curious about the cultural aspect of the practice of medicine in Bolivia. What does that look like, and and what of that experience have you taken with you to the U.S. and you and something that you're applying mm-hmm. every day? Well, I think there's there's plenty of bedside experience. You know, they're, they're not subspecialty training, not at least back you know, a couple, 10 years ago when I was training. So it was mostly driven by residents, pretty busy hospitals, as you can imagine. So a lot of patients to see, a lot of procedures to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to take the blood samples for all our patients. So we got used to, and I think that makes you more rational about what you really need, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you have to collect samples and write notes and see patients, you know, you might not finish uh, on time. So, um, a lot of um, bedside experience for sure. Uh, access to technology limited, um, but I don't think it was. It's necessarily a resource. Uh, I, I think some of it depends on when you practice, where you practice. I think there's a little bit more inequity in terms of what you see in private practice versus what you see in, in public hospitals. That's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. and 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 then you have to adapt, right? So so if you're in a setting. Because, you know, during that year that I was doing a lot of gen peds, you know, most pediatricians actually end up covering NICUs, you know, because, well, now probably they're, they're monientologists, but, you know, 10 years ago, it was mostly general pediatricians covering mm-hmm. NICU, NICUs uh, across the city. 
and um and then they would um you know there was there was always that that um those limitations you know of, of how much you can do you know in some places you will have everything that you need and others you would just have to adapt so just very different uh depending on where you were uh, but the academic hospital where i actually did my residency it was it was just volume i think the most mm-hmm. uh, important thing and, and that makes you I guess seeing so many patients, it helps now in my current practice, it just gives so much perspective about, about medical decisions, I guess, you know, because sometimes you have to do those, you know, without a lot of information. And now sometimes we find those things challenging here, even though we do have access to more information, right? So we have more testing, we Mm -hmm. have more imaging available and, and we still struggle with, with making a clinical decision. Yeah. So I, I found that interesting that sometimes it's, you you think that by having more information, you will be able to make better decisions. But I don't know. I don't think that's always the case. You know, sometimes you, you still need to have that clinical uh, experience, you know, that clinical argument to, to make a diagnosis and all that. Well, I think having, you know, being challenged with, you know, a less technology really enhances the clinical exam, right? You, you know, you rely so much more on your clinical exam. I think that's so valuable, um, that experience. Yeah, for sure. You know, but, but I'm not against it. You know, I definitely think, that, you know, if you have access to technology, yeah. you should use it. I don't think you can, you should use that as an excuse to just keep relying on, on, on things that sometimes are subjective. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, then then I think it's justifiable to make decisions without them. Um, yeah. Well, tell us more then about your your fellowship path. We we took a roundabout trip together. <laughs> yes. Um, so there was a detour actually that um, that I think most people up, but that I had to consider because you know the U.S. in reality was like a big shot, you know, and I, I wanted to be realistic and I didn't want to take another year off, you know, without any training. So I did um, actually have a backup plan just in case, you know, I couldn't make it here. And most people in, in Latin America, you know, they go to places like Argentina, Chile, mm-hmm. Mexico, they, they have good programs. So I had I had that as a backup plan, you know, I did apply for, for, for subspecialty training outside Bolivia, but, um, but then, then I got my 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 scores and I, I got you know an interview and and then after that you know I felt like there was it was it's, it's like everything else right so there's there's a leap of faith at some point where you say well I think it's a good chance and I'll ha- I have to you know I should just go ahead and try but fellowship you know um, you know from from the you know foreign medical graduate perspective I think it's challenging. Um, but it might be easier than starting with residency because you know, there was at least I didn't have a lot of clinical duty as a fellow. You know, I could make decisions as a fellow, but but and, and then have the residents, you know, doing the day-to-day kind of things, you know, notes and seeing patients and, and then they just ask you for advice. So I think it was easier for me to adapt through that path. I think it would have been much more challenging as a resident coming from from a foreign country. Just because the system itself is so different, you know, and 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 I didn't have to deal with with a lot of that, at least as a fellow. Now, 
I think there was uh, some some things that I, I, I should have done uh, more often as a fellow because I would be the kind of fellow that just stands in front of the ventilator, you know, start tweaking the, the settings and 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 um, stay at the bedside quite a lot. But I think it's also important to to use training as an opportunity to communicate with families, with the team, you know, all those other things that I think I didn't do much during, mm. during fellowship. I did have the opportunity, though, to do all of that through a second residency. Mm-hmm. So I felt like at least I was able to to catch up a little bit more with with being, uh, yes, being at the bedside and making medical decisions there, but also just, just communicating with families and, and, and being a good team player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that often goes unnoticed, uh, especially yeah. to our American colleagues that a lot of IMGs have to repeat residency. And, and, and for 90% of us, this is not a fun idea. <laughs> Uh, yeah. prospect of uh, of saying, yeah, residency is over. Let's do that one more time. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, though, no. my, my, I had in my residency class, my colleagues who were doing their second residency were, gosh, such a, such a wealth of information, right? When we didn't know, we went to them first before the attending, before the fellow, because, you know, they knew exactly what to do. So, uh, yeah. gosh, I... My whole experience in residency was um, was really made better by by my colleagues who were who were because of the system doing their second residency. So uh, I had a friend in the residency was from Japan. His name was Shikara. He was a PIDS ID attending in Japan, but apparently somehow I don't want to say that there's no PIDS ID fellowship in Japan. But there was he wanted to get a certification in PIDS ID. He wanted to pursue a fellowship, so he was my co resident and. It was amazing. You could get an ID consult <laughs> in an instant, and and he did eventually go into Pete's ID, and he did eventually. I think he's, I think he's the director of a Pete's ID department somewhere. I want to say in Seattle, but I'm not sure. I have to check in with him. Um, Aria, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about you, you. You're known for your interest in nutrition. You're, you're, you publish a lot on this topic. Um, I'm curious as to. Um, you, you describe yourself as the fellow who stands by the ventilator. When did this interest slash passion for neonatal nutrition begin? Well, actually, actually, it was during my second year of fellowship. You know, first year I was trying to adapt to the system. I was trying to get comfortable with with all the management. Um, so I kind of put a hold on, on my research interests Uh at first, because I was doing some work in hyperbilirubinemia back home, I thought that, that was the path I wanted to take. Mm-hmm. But then I felt like there's really not a whole lot to do since there's such an effective therapy for it. You know, I really felt like there's there's not a whole lot of research that could be expanded on on hyperbilirubinemia. That's why, you know, after discussing with my mentors, I I I, I just started thinking about what things have not been studied much and. You know, as, as you know, the, the respiratory research area in neonatology is saturated. quite saturated, yeah. right? So there's there are plenty of researchers on that area, and I feel like you know I think it will be very hard, hard to to come up with something new since so many people are working on this field. So that's when I I thought about you know started looking at practices, uh, daily practices in the NICU, and, and the nutrition was the one with a lot of viability. Right, so then that's when I said, well, if we if we start working on, on this practice, it's so variable across, so then maybe we should 
you know, this is a, a career path that can actually expand. Um, so there was a bit of um, like some of those those are to some extent strategic decisions, right? So see, there's a field that has a lot of potential to grow versus respect to research that has grown a lot already and actually has been very successful at achieving, you know, decreased mortality, decreased BPD, not, I mean, in, in its totality, but definitely made a lot of progress. Nutrition-wise, though, we've been behind for, for a while, if you think about it. Um, so that's how I started. And then we started with a very basic project as, as a fellow, um, just just refeeding gastric residual volumes versus fresh feeding. At that point, you know, not checking residuals wasn't even under consideration. I like that you have to quantify uh, that, saying, so we saying said, this, this is uh, the yes. hot topic of residuals. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yes. it's still a topic in a lot of units, you know, so uh, this is really important work, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's why we try. We said, we know, let's provide some evidence about it. And I think that's that's how I, I selected nutrition. I think there are things that need to be studied. Um, but I don't know if, you know, and then, but we're going to need more large multi-center trials to, to, to have a final answer on them. But at least, you know, provide some some direction of effects, some 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 at least preliminary findings that can provide some ideas of where things are going, or at least at least to prove safety of some of the interventions. It's still still relevant. Mm -hmm. So nutrition has been, I think, from the beginning an area of opportunity. Then also did some with vitamin D as a fellow. That was the last thing that I did, and then and then residency happened, right? So which was a pause of, of research for two years. Let me ask you about nutrition research, right? I mean, so many things are being studied these days on nutrition. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is, for you, the most pressing issue that needs to be worked out, right? I mean, we talk about, and, and, and we talk about many, many different things. We talk about uh, the, the, the way we feed babies, whether uh, drops by mouth versus OG feeds, continuous versus bolus. We're talking about feed advancement versus slow feed, adva rapid feed advancement versus slow feed advancement, feeding on CPAP. There's a million controversies. Um, and it's, to be right. honest with you, I am interested in nutrition, but not to the extent that you are or some of my colleagues are. So I, I look at it from the periphery, but it can make your head spin a little bit as to like, we, we, what am I supposed to focus on? Uh, in your opinion, what is the most pressing uh, issue to study and investigate? That's a very good point. And I think when we talk about nutrition, I think just, just as you mentioned, it's very important to optimize all the other practices as well. Okay, so I think you need really good clinical practice first, and then you can study nutrition as something that can make things better. But just providing good nutrition is not going to fix a lot of health problems if the practice is not evidence-based or is at least good enough. You know, and that's why for, for us, you know, in our unit, it's so important to standardize respiratory management. So I think that's why for us, you know, it's a bit easier to detect those effects that nutrition have on outcomes just because all the other practices, uh, you know, have been really, really validated, you know, through, through research and, 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 and protocols. So I think nutrition needs good clinical practice to, to, to show effectiveness. Um, 
But within the field, within nutrition, of course, there I think the main is, is the elephant in the room, right? So neck. Neck is what has uh, been always the challenge when, when we think about nutrition. And we, naturally, we connect the two, right? So if you think about nutrition, somehow automatically mm. neck comes in mind. And, and there are a bit, um, I mean, nutrition, yes, is one risk factor of neck, but it's not the only one. And I think it's important to remind everyone, thinking about nutrition, that, um, yes, that's one of the risk factors, but not the only one. And nutrition needs a lot of, um, and nutrition is to optimize growth. It's not, I don't know if we're going to be, not yet though, I don't see this anytime soon. We're not going to find a nutrition practice that will decrease the risk of neck. Mm. We might actually be able to maintain the risk. I need not to increase it, but I don't don't think we can offer yet what everybody wants, Mm -hmm. a nutrition practice that can improve growth and decrease neck at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think those those are very ideal goals, mm-hmm. but I don't think they're possible to achieve. Not at this time, at least. Because, you know, as we optimize nutrition, that means that we have to provide more nutrients, more intra nutrition, and that could potentially become a risk for neck. We don't know yet for sure, but um, that, yes, might actually not decrease the risk of neck. Um, but if it stays the same, so I think we can claim that that nutrition practice, yes, it improves growth, but it doesn't yeah, decrease neck. And I think that's the challenge because everybody wants a trial power for the outcome of neck, and and then and then then we just don't find anything, you know, anytime that we power, or we it's, it's just make it impossible, you know, a true a truly. A, Power for neck study power for neck will need close to realistically eight thousand patients mm-hmm. to 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 show what we want to show in terms of neck effect on neck. So that's a lot of babies. I think that's that's the challenge. Yes, yeah. it's not. It's You're not, right. Not, I was going to say it's not what I would have expected you to say. Right? I mean, it's it's super <laughs> interesting. It's super interesting that as an expert on nutrition, your recommendation is maybe focus on better clinical practices. <laughs> more consistent care and don't always seek to reduce the effects of neck because it might be a, an extremely, extremely uh, high goal that as a, as a first time researcher, you may not be able to, to hit right off the bat. I think this is an interesting, it's a very, uh, it's a very practical approach. Sorry, Daphne, you were going to say something. Plus. No, I, I was going to say it, it's, they're, they're all interconnected, right? Like Ben, nutrition is not my primary area of interest. It's really neurodevelopment. And so what I like about what, you know, your research is really looking about how, how does nutrition, how can nutrition optimize neurodevelopmental outcomes? Because I think they're very related. And so I'm desperate to learn more about nutrition and optimize nutrition because I know it's going to change my outcome of interest, which is really um, neurodevelopment. And and I obviously reducing neck is something we should do, but there are so many, like you said, components to nutrition that change long-term outcomes for babies. Uh, obesity, the metabolic syndrome, allergies, uh, school-aged learning, and, and you know, i I, I'm glad that, you know, there are people who are not just looking at neck, right, as important as it is, but there's so many variables to nutrition. And, and Daphna, that's, that's a very good point. You know, sometimes we, we created all these um, short-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, BPD is, is, has an operational definition. You know, it's not 
something like diabetes that is is, is permanent. You know, we, we we you know we came up with that definition. Same thing with and and neck, right? So we it's an operational definition, but um, the long term impact of those outcomes are are still you know not well defined. And what matters the most is probably those those sort of outcomes, right? So what happens at two years of age? What happens if you have neck at at twenty eight days, but then your outcome at two years is 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 just is normal? Does does neck really matter then? You know, it, it, what what's the goal of of decreasing that one outcome if if the outcome at two years of age was exactly the same? So, I think just like BPD, neck needs um, uh, a new definition. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, experts in the field working on it, but um, it's just um, it's just being a, a a very limiting factor to to advance nutrition research because you know we all get so worried about it and 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 then that's that's just um, it's I mean don't get me wrong it, it is an unfortunate event but um but but then so it is when when babies end up with with malnutrition we don't even want to call it that way right so we call it postnatal growth failure. Just because malnutrition sounds uh, sounds like we in, like we, in, bad. we caused it. Yes, but yeah, and then especially in especially in a place like here in the states, to feel like babies are having malnutrition in our hospitals seems like we can't say that, right? You know, right? Yes. Uh, so, so I think we we need to focus on on that outcome and um, as well. You know, just I think this is probably equally important. So when we ask for for. Uh, Effects on neck. I think we should also ask for effects on on growth and prevention of of postnatal growth faltering. Um, I I wanted to um, ask you something that I've heard many times over, which is that sometimes you you should disregard the current evidence at the expense of consistency of care, meaning that regardless of what the quote unquote best practice would be sometimes having a consistent practice is more beneficial to to just practicing sometimes to practicing more more advanced uh more advanced especially nutritional care um because the variability that you might encounter does impact the outcomes more than if you had a different practice but more consistent <laughs> i'm really trying to to we were going to give easy questions. This is a this is a minefield. That <laughs> I know, but I'm I'm trying to really toe the line, not to say that it's good to not. I'm not trying to say that it's good to practice non evidence based medicine. But what I'm saying is that instead of adopting the latest and latest practices, sometimes consistency is maybe as important, if not more important. And I feel like this is something I've heard, especially in the context of nutritional of nutrition care and stuff like that. Can you can you talk a little right. bit about that? Do you agree with that with that idea? Yes, Ben. I definitely see value of standardization of practice, right? And I think it's the first step forward. But I think we should add flexibility to those those um, protocolized managements because they need to evolve. My concern with them, I think, I, I think it's been proven, right? So that when you standardize something, outcomes improve. The question is, and, and then you're right, you might be standardizing practices that have not been validated uh, through evidence-based medicine. But, you know, the moment that you find out that 
the 25 cc per kilo is just as good as 20. I think we should have some flexibility in, in the system to evolve. Because what, ha- what I've seen is that sometimes when we standardize some practices, no one wants to change mm-hmm. those a-, a year later. Yeah. And the reality is that, that how fast things um, happened in, in neonatology. And I think we should be able to adapt to those new changes. I know nobody, no one likes to be taught again, the new practice, the new protocol and everything else. But, but if we want to provide the best care, so we need to evolve with the field. And, and, and yes, you know, I think the first protocol that did not have all the evidence available when, when it was developed. So, so now it should, it should evolve and should, should be changed to incorporate all these new, new things. Um, so that's why anytime that we, we are very careful, you know, in our unit to call it protocol, you know, we don't have a feeding protocol. Technically, we do have a guideline. But they always there's a warning there that this might change. You know, this is what we do currently to standardize, just to get that benefit of just decreasing variability. But you know, just just the warning that this will evolve most likely. I think it's it's, it's important so people are prepared for for additional changes. We should be willing to adapt. I think sometimes that's the fight uh, with feeding. You know, because they they would say those things, right? So that now that we have the protocol, finally it's been. It's been a year. Now it's the protocol is, you know, it's printed and it's ready. It. It took us now by, by then. It's laminated. That's it. You can't right. edit it. <laughs> exactly. And I think we should. And, and I think we just need to go back to what has happened with, with really literature now, right? So, and I, I like to use this analogy with between encyclopedias and, and Wikipedia, right? So, so 20 years ago, you know, for something to, to make it to an encyclopedia had to be curated, you know, for who knows, five years or so. That would delay the introduction of that concept into the encyclopedia, but it was, it was considered to be like the one thing that is already validated and studied and mm-hmm. good enough to be an encyclopedia. But then there was, in that process, there was a five, five to 10 year delay just to have that information actually in, in, in available for yeah. everyone. And now Wikipedia, you know, it's, it's 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 something that is being edited, you know, weekly, monthly basis, mm-hmm. and and there's one that has survived, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Wikipedia is the one, that, the source now of information for many, and encyclopedias are now so obsolete. So sometimes we have to acknowledge that, you know, knowledge evolves at a, at a much faster pace than than before. My, my dad used to have. We had this beautiful encyclopedia at home. Uh, back in France, like I forgot how many, like maybe like sixty volumes. Mm. Uh, it was a great encyclopedia. And when we moved, and my parents and we left the country, my dad was trying to um, either sell it or give it to a library. No one wanted it. Like the mm. library said, no, don't don't bring it to the library. Like we don't want it. Like we don't want. I know, but it's like it's uh, what you're describing—the survival of uh, of the more nimble, right? The agility and how that allows you to survive better. I wanted to ask you one more, I guess that's a tougher question, but I wanted to ask this because you're Dr. Salas, you work at UAB, you do work on nutrition, and then there's the other neonatologists who work in a smaller institution that does not have a large academic center, maybe doesn't have a nutritionist, doesn't maybe even have a neonatal pharmacist, and all these this data is coming down the pipelines when it comes to neonatal nutrition. And I'm putting myself in their shoes saying, well, I don't have all the tools 
to really optimize the nutrition to the extent that some of these papers are recommending because I don't have a nutritionist and I'm by myself rounding on 25 patients. Um, it could feel very overwhelming when you see those discussions, especially considering what you were talking about before, which is that it's not categorical evidence that's really coming down, right? If, if, it, if it were something categorical where we say, yeah, you advance feeds by 50 mLs per kilo every day, that's the evidence. Then you could say, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll follow the evidence. But it's still so murky. What is your advice to people practicing in smaller units where the resources are a bit more limited in order to optimize, as you said, growth, reducing NEC, like what is what what are some of the basic principles in your opinion that should be applied everywhere? Well, I actually had the opportunity to have these conversations, you know, with um, some neonatologists in, in Latin America mm-hmm. because I had the opportunity to visit some some cities or, or you know virtually, you know, um, the symposiums and um, there's always that question, right? So yeah, you talk about all these things that can be done, but you know, we don't have this, we don't have all this other things and and you know, I think for me, I said, I definitely, one of the big limitations in most places is just parental nutrition, right? Whether that's customized and, you know, to the points that you're mentioning, you know, now there's so much about, you know, customized TPN, customized fortification. I think those things are so far away from the bedside in places like the ones you're describing. So, so I, I'm, I'm worried when, 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 when that's kind of the, the, the direction they want to take, because it might not be generalizable so but i and i always try to rescue the things that can actually be being done regardless of resources and i think that's human milk feeding um you know if you can facilitate um pumping milk extraction so then then you become less depending on dpn so you might be able to we've you know we've shown that you know the faster you advance feeds the, the sooner you come off uh, tpn so, so, so you might be saving very important resources by just being a bit more aggressive with feeds. Now, of course, you would need more human milk, right? But, but then, and that's something that it is available. Uh, so it's uh, to me that's more like a supply uh, supply chain issue, right? I mean, there is the producer. And God knows we know about that these days. Huh? <laughs> right, <laughs> and then it's just just how we facilitate that and. And, you know, the problem is that some basic clinicians are, are not, you know, don't have the time to, to, to get involved in that process. But it's so important, especially if you want to provide uh, good nutrition. I think, you know, we rely a lot on donor milk nowadays, but, you know, in some places they don't have access to, to milk banks. And, and for them, it's even more important to facilitate lactation and facilitate uh, um uh, pumping pumps, you know, so important even even in, in very resourceful settings, you know, just just the practice and teaching of it. So I I, I see value in that. Um, the other common concern I hear is is just fortification. You know how that's going to be done, whether you have access to them or not. I think um, yes, yes, it's it's a resource dependent thing, but but it can be done. You know, just just. Uh, First, you have to optimize your enteral nutrition practices. Then we'll talk about fortification. Mm-hmm. But, but um, most interestingly enough, you, enteral nutrition seems to be more efficient than parental. Even though parental 
makes you feel comfortable with the numbers, right? Yeah. So, so you're giving four grams, you're giving three grams, but somehow those do not translate into better growth. Absolutely. But when you look at the, the low numbers of enteral nutrition, they still seem to be very effective to, to improve growth. So, so I don't think it's just a, an issue of numbers, but also an issue of, uh, not quantity, but also quality. You know, and I think the enteral nutrition they provide is better quality, better bioavailability probably, and therefore, you know, much more effective in achieving the goal that we want. Plus, you know, it's what nature does, right? So I always wonder, you know, if you think uh, what happens in mammals is always the same story, right? So the first thing that the offspring of mammals are going to do is, is just to feed. Mm-hmm. And somehow we felt we thought that not feeding was the right thing to do. Yeah, for a while, huh? You know, and, and then we were, yeah, we we're going against nature. And I think that was um, probably something that we need um, to keep in mind. You know, anytime that you try to mess around with nature, you might mm-hmm. be proven wrong you might be, eventually. You might regret it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, I love that. Same thing with. I, no, I love that focus on on, you know, we have something that is. Um, it is available to us, but it's like a lot of work, right? For these um, just postpartum people to be pumping around the clock. And um, I find that, you know, no matter where I practiced, uh, there were still plenty of people who weren't asking moms about how is pumping going? You know, what can we do to optimize? How can we support you? Um, When it when we know that despite all of our technology and despite all of these things that we are putting into babies, the one thing that has like always rung true is that breast milk is, is something we should treat as, you know, medication for, for these, these neonates. So how, how can we get people, you know, engaged in, in having that discussion? Maybe they're uncomfortable having the discussion. I don't know. You know, how can we get all neonatologists to just be asking parents about, you know, pumping practices and, and how should we better support them in the unit and at home? Yes. I mean, there are some programs that have been very successful. You know, I think um, they have male programs and supportive groups, um, um but implementation is, is, is complicated. You know, again, you know, it comes down to logistics. That's why I think it's just just a supply chain um, issue, really. And, and then we need someone very involved in, in logistics to make it work. Because I get it. You know, sometimes as a neonatologist, you have to, you know, be at their side. They'll call you for deliveries. They'll you 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 are busy in the unit. You might not have enough time to to have this this one to one conversation with with the the mom, but I think, you know, someone should have that as a responsibility. And sometimes we let that to our lactation consultants that might be seeing a lot of other babies, you know, even in newborn nurseries, plus the NICU, and and they do their best, but it's, it's, it's just not, um, and it's, it's, there's no good communication either, right? So we don't know what they have told them already and what things they haven't, but apparently for what I've Red is very important when it comes from from the primary mm-hmm. doctors. So I think it's important to say a few words at least of what you think. Mm-hmm. Now, I always worry about people thinking that that's just being too paternalistic, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always it feels like a bad word sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes parents need that that guidance needs that need that that you're, you're they want to hear what you think, and, and, and we should take the time to at least 
express how we feel about some some practices. And that's I think it's fair to call it libertarian paternalism. I like that term because you know they still have the choice, but but you are providing some guidance on what you think is probably best. And in that case, they probably with breast milk feeding. I don't think you you you'll be wrong. I'm so happy you mentioned that because it touches on the history of our field where number one, uh, David Barker through the Barker hypothesis has shown clearly that there's a, there's a, there's a fetal origin to adult disease, meaning how, how a mother feeds during the pregnancy, how she feeds after the pregnancy affects the, the nutritional and growth development of the child, right? The, the studies from the Dutch famine have shown that where mothers really were, were starving because it was a famine, how that affected the infants and their postnatal growth. The other aspect of our field that was interesting was that it didn't used to be separated. In, we didn't used to separate the care of the mother and the care of the baby, right? OBGYNs used to be uh, taking care of the mother, delivering the mother, and then have to take care of the babies. And only more recently, I guess, quote unquote, have, have, we, have we divided that care and now the neonatologist takes care of the baby and the mother is being taken care of by the OBGYN. But I'm wondering if, uh, what is your opinion on the idea that we should be talking to mothers about their diets during the pregnancy, about their diets during um, in the postpartum phase? Like, I don't, I've never asked a mother what she's feeding, and and it also not just relates to nutrition, but also to mental health and 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 rest and all these things that could potentially optimize the delivery of breast milk to the baby and in turn help the baby's growth. And it's, it's such an intricate network of variables. Um, and like you said, we tend to delegate a lot of that stuff to others. The OB is going to talk to the mothers about vitamins, about supplementing with vitamins, about supplementing their diet, about talking about their diet. The lactation consultant is going to talk about pumping and we're completely looping ourselves out. And so I'm wondering if you agree that we do need to get our hands in the dirt and, ask those questions and and if you have an approach that you would recommend for people who may not be super comfortable talking about these things to to parents yeah i definitely see great benefits you know of, of combining efforts and, and come up uh, with a plan together but also think about the challenges. You know, we, we came up with a breastfeeding initiative as uh, recently uh, as, as, as we were implementing our new feeding practices. And, and it's, it's definitely challenging, you know, to, to agree on things. You know, like we wanted to get a little bit on, on maternal diet, uh, postpartum, to see if we could provide some recommendations. But, but then the evidence is so weak. Mm. And then, and then you are in that dilemma, right? So should we provide recommendations based on very limited evidence or should we just try not to make any inference yet because this is going to be, you know, printed information and we don't want to be held accountable. get into, <laughs> yes, into, into something that might actually be wrong, you know, that, and I think that's not a problem. And that, and that goes back to the importance of, of research, of any extent you know sometimes you sometimes you feel like a project is too small but those are small contributions and yeah. still you know it's the aggregate that is going to move the field of course you know we would like to say there's going to be one study that and there have been a few studies out there that were able to move the field vertically and just with just one study but 
in many other areas, in, in, in most cases, it has been just the aggregate of, of multiple and small studies. So I think, well, that's what I think I we shouldn't think this, this get discouraged by the size of the problem. You know, just mm-hmm. we can still make small contributions. Yeah, I love that. And what's so interesting about your research is you, you do nutrition research, but that's such a big umbrella. But what you have done is ver- is varied, right? Including not just uh, nutritional components, but even um, working on infant feeding, right? So actual oral feeding. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of those projects. I know you're working on a bottle nipple design, which is really cool. Right. <laughs> yes, I, I put that on hold. You know, I haven't been doing anything on oral feeding in the past year. But um, yes, we're very interested in another field with a lot of variability and, and with a lot of sub- subjectivity. You know, oral feeding is so subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, some nurses will tell you the baby's not sucking well, it's just not good strength, not um, you know, swallowing. All this is so subjective. You know, the next person tells you gives you a total different report. So I think that's something that needs more objectivity, especially for us as neonatologists, you know, we're so number driven. You know, we like to see monitors. We like to see how things change day by day. With with oral feeding, I feel like the report is, oh, well, maybe wasn't interested today, you know. Uh, the cue-based feeding too sometimes is it's still subjective, even though we have, like parameters so yeah. that's why we thought about it and, and we came up with this idea of, of having this bottle to assess um nutritive sucking um which was uh again you know it's at a very early stages but we feel like we can at least define a couple of patterns that could guide us to define who are going to successfully uh, get to full oral feeding sooner you know at least detect those and then later we'll be able to tell which ones might benefit from specific therapies and things like that. But Very cool. Yeah. I think that's another field for, for research that is, has a lot of potential. Very cool. Um, since we're talking about research and, and, and you are funded by the NICHD, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the journey <laughs> to actually achieve <laughs> grant funding in the U.S., um, Number one, I mean, we've we've talked to Eric Jensen, who um, is is a is a mega accomplished clinician and scientist, and and even him had to say that his grant proposal got rejected without even uh, a, an opportunity for review, and it was very eye opening. It was an eye opening experience for us to hear somebody of this caliber describing the struggles of going through the the grant application process, and so I was wondering. Uh, as a as a foreign medical graduate, I think there's a lot of stigma around applying for grants. Many people think that um, it's even not available. Uh, can you tell us what was your experience getting through to obtaining grant funded uh, research projects? Yes, absolutely. So, so when I started, as I said, I did some research back home. You know, no funding, no even support at all from from the programs. I would just do it on my own. So. I was fine with the idea of doing my research without any funding. So during, and during fellowship, I think for most fellows, it's probably the same. You don't really feel that much pressure. You know, you can really pursue any interest that you have and, and your program is going to support that research. But then, you know, once you start your, your faculty position, that's when the funding becomes a question, right? So, so how is, 
how's this going to get funded? How are we going to support this idea that you have? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, as a foreign medical graduate, you're right. You, you don't have access to um, federal funding unless you change your visa status and you eventually become either a permanent resident or, or a citizen. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, there's, there's a lot of challenges ahead, right? Because the only options for foreigners is, is mostly foundations um, that do not have any specific requirements in there for citizenship or, or permanent residency. So, so that's usually the, the initial path. But as you can imagine, those are just as competitive as as as, as NIH grants sometimes. So, so there's a lot of disappointments for sure. You know, as as, as you advance in the career, yeah. and 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 it's it's I think something that we need to be prepared. I guess I wasn't, you know, because you know, sometimes you have this success story, right? So you came from a foreign country, then you do fellowship, you do residency. You get productive, you do your research, then you feel like you're in an exponential trajectory mm-hmm. of, of growth, and then suddenly reality hits. Wow. And then and there's there's no funding, right? So then 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 and there's all these other things. And and I think uh, I wasn't prepared for that, right? So I felt like, you know, because I did all these great things mm-hmm. before, you know, at least I had something to show that would have um, given me better, uh, put me in a better place. And, and that's not always the case. Sometimes uh, it just, that those things don't don't count, you know. That you still have to go through through this this waiting mm. process. So, so there are definitely uh, ups and downs on that, and I think we should all be prepared for that. And research in general, right? So there's so much uncertainty with it. You know, sometimes your project doesn't show what you want, and, and you have to start over again. You know, you you see the final results, you get disappointed for a mm. day, and then the next day you come up with the next study. And then you move on, and, and I think it's important to, to live with that. Now, the good thing is, though, that you, know, you find very supportive people along the way. And and I have to say that Eric, actually, Eric Jensen was one of those people at some point. You know, uh, we had, I remember talking with him at one of our national meetings, and I told him, you know, I just, I don't know about this, this K, you know, it's, this grant is just, don't know if it, I'm ready or not, and then and then just just knowing those experiences just help, you know. Just and I think that's how I am now too. You know, I'm really very open to share, you know, my successes, but also my my failures and the things that helped me to to get better at what I do. I think that's so important. And because you know, sometimes you go to these conferences and you hear all the good things that people have done, and you hear about all the success that they've had, uh, but. You know, there's always a story of failure behind all that that might actually be very instructive for you as a trainee. So it's 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 good to hear them, not not to to discredit the success that the person has had, but actually to to learn from from those those failures that are so important. I feel like as you are building your own career. So it was yeah. very helpful uh, to to hear from others. Yeah, I think I, I think this is this is very important what you're describing. We tend to have a culture in medicine and science that does that that is almost allergic to mm. failure. We do not want to talk about uh, our cases. We don't want to talk about our bad outcomes. We don't want to talk about our f- rejections. When in truth, 
everybody is going through it. Everybody is actually uh, having to deal with it. And the fact that we're not sharing more of our experiences means that we don't get to utilize the network of support that we have available from our immediate colleagues and from the community at large. Um, so I think it's very important, like you said, not to discredit anything, but to realize that somebody like you, somebody like Eric Jensen have been rejected through the grant application process. And that's normal. And that mm -hmm. if, if you're a young investigator and your grant proposal does not get funded, that it doesn't mean that you're, you're not worthy. <laughs> it just, yeah, or the idea something... is not good, right? That's, that's or, not right. what it means. Yeah. Right. And so I think this is this is critical, in my opinion, that people understand that everybody is going through the same struggle. But I, I do think um, where your advice is critical is because many young neonatologists, providers, investigators will make career decisions based on on the stigma or based on the the hearsay that like, oh, like this is not an avenue that's available to me. So I'm going to reroute myself to a more um, clinical job because I know like funding is going to be super difficult. So I think it's important for people to know that there are many paths to getting funded and to getting your research off the ground. And, and I think it's important for people to know that. Grant is going to come if you, you know, if you try hard as, as, uh, as much much you can um and, and 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 if you put your effort and i think that's something that's so hard to measure but if you see that people put effort on things you know there's a good chance that you might actually be able to succeed and and i think that is what's needed And so, go ahead, Daphne, I'm sorry. No, I know you have one more question about this. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you then, um, so, so it's okay if we share your email address in our, in our show notes, correct? Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, very interesting okay. to hear. So then, so then my question, I know, I know you, you enjoy mentoring. I mean, you're, you're a student of Dr. Carlo, so, so mentoring is like in your DNA almost. But what I wanted to ask you was, for somebody seeking mentorship, in your opinion, what is your advice to young investigators in seeking advice and help from more accomplished researchers? I, well, I think that it's important to, to have a good sense of their research profile. You know, if you're looking for a research mentor, um, I'd really like to see if they sort of have this growth mindset uh, in general. You know, if they expect uh, for uh, if they expect um, trainees to 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 grow over time you know because some people really think that there's there's this, this is the thing about nature and nurture okay so some people sometimes classify you as whether you have it or not mm -hmm. and you, you can still be successful with the approach but you know when you're in training you don't really benefit much from people that think that it's all all nature you know so so i think knowing if, if they feel that way mm -hmm. is important um also, just how they collaborate with with others, you know, just just gives you a sense of how uh, approachable they are, you know, how they're willing to share information. Because if it's if it, I would say if it's an isolated researcher that hasn't done a lot of work with other people, you know, I think that could be you know a red flag. That yes, the person very successful, but it's having problems getting along with others. You might have the same problem with you. 
if they're the only authors on on every one of their papers, it's probably not a good. Yes, one. right. So, it's a red so flag. I think those those are the main ones, and, and it's not much about success. And then the resources, right? So see if if, if they have um, access to a lot of team. I mean, it's not like they need to have them uh, all of, uh, manage all all the resources, but at least have access to to support um, to people that can provide support. You know, with with analysis. You know, have you contact with a good statistician. With with a good um, with good research nurses coordinators so th- those sort of things. And, and do you think it's important for people to to seek mentors at the very early stages of their idea, saying like I have an idea, I need to check in with a mentor, or saying do a bit of the work and then seek help? That's that's a good one. I think I've seen I've seen both. You know, I've heard uh, I've heard residents come in to me you know with very well developed projects and some others just just very early stages you know what 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 you think you should be doing and those sort of things i think it's just that's that's probably an issue a matter of preference i would think that the sooner you approach them the better just because then then you start getting more input as you build your 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 protocol or or your study idea so i think I would I would say maybe sooner the better because you don't need to have the final product back to that right so I don't think I'm a, you know even if you when you think it's final I think that happens with manuscripts as well you know sometimes you feel like manuscript is ready and then it goes out for internal review and then suddenly it's you have to start all over again there's no such so, thing as a final draft <laughs> right I'm I'm so struck by your story about how like your experiences have shaped you and your interactions, um, you know, with mentors have shaped you. And I wonder how you feel like this COVID, these COVID times have impacted, um, you know, research and are we more stagnant or have we had time at home to be writing more or, you know, not being able to go to meetings and not being able to maybe have more experiences? Like, how do you think that's impacting trainees and and research as a whole? Well, I think, um, I think we've probably all of us have been through different cycles to this pandemic, right? So, so the first half, I would say, you know, a lot of fear, you know, just, just of losing someone or, or, you know, not being there for your family, those sort of things, I think, were pressing thoughts, you know, throughout, you know, what you're doing, you know, seeing patients and and having to to do, um, to create your reports, being productive. Actually, the pandemic, uh, my first year of the grant happened through uh, the first year of the pandemic, so I was trying to show productivity, but at the same time, you know, there's so many limitations. Plus, you know, everybody else was living in such a survival mode, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Trying to do the best you can, but definitely not being able to to maximize, you know, your opportunities. I think that has been expected. We struggle a lot with our some of our research uh, support people. You know, some some people had existential crisis. You know, like expected. You know, is this what I want to do? You know, for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I think that had helped us, had, you know, made us reorganize some our team sometimes, and, and you know, I had to be respectful because I think it was it was a, it was a time to, to to question things again, you know. And I think we, and probably you know, same thing for for many researchers, for many clinicians as well, right? So it's, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? You know, it's this mm-hmm. is what I want. So I think I had those moments like probably everybody else. Um, 
then there's this phase of, you know, overwhelming, you know, when things were starting getting better, suddenly, you know, the list of things that you've been waiting for finally were about to happen and it just felt so overwhelming. I just mm-hmm. couldn't catch up with my emails for almost a month, you know, because I had so many yeah. things that I was postponing and, and yeah, I think it's going to take time, you know, to, to, to get back to, to a traditional routine. But, you know, I think it's been eye opening for, for, for many of us um, in some ways, you know, to, to try to find that balance that, you know, it's, it probably doesn't exist really, but, you know, just seeking for it. Maybe it's, it's just a good first step. Um, yeah. I'm glad you used the word balance actually. And, and I think the pandemic has pushed all of us right to our, to our limits, but um, being a researcher still working, you know, doing clinical time, having family obligations, you know, we like to ask all, all of our guests, like, how do you, how do you navigate it all? How do you balance it all? Um, how do you, you know, manage productivity, but keeping your, you know, mental health um, yeah. on track also? Yeah, you don't realize how much, uh, how you isolate. You know, I haven't seen my colleagues in a long mm-hmm. time. You know, we haven't yeah. gathered, you know, we see each other, you know, during checkouts and, and, and that's it sometimes. And then we have our division meetings, you know, over Zoom, but, but it's not the count. same, right? It's not like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really looking, look forward to seeing all, and colleagues from other institutions, Gosh, you know, it's it's been so long. So human contact is what uh, is what keeps the balance going, huh? I think so. Yes, I, I, you you don't think much about it, but you know, when you miss it, uh, it's just it, it becomes like a need yeah, we are. in some way. Yeah, we are social beings, after all. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was a lot of discussions early on in the pandemic about not saying social distancing, but more physical distancing. And uh, I know Daphna is very keen on nomenclature. So that I think, I think, I think, and semantics, I think this is very important. We, we should try to remain social. And that's one of the things we're trying to do, I guess, on the podcast. Um, before we let you go, Ariel, I mean, you, you do have a website um, called neonatalnutritionresearch.com, which we'll, we'll link in the show description for people. But can you tell the audience what they can find on that website? And um who, what they can find if they're interested in your research or participating and stuff like that? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, man. Uh, so what, we created this website just to, to um, well, initially we wanted to have some sort of parental resources about our studies. We want them to have access to additional information because sometimes, you know, what we can explain it, you know, throughout the consent process might be limited, you know, sometimes it might be helpful to have figures, to have some some additional resources developed in one place. So that's one of the purposes of the, st- of the, the site. But also just to, to show uh, the studies that we've done, also to provide some information about the evidence available in some of the things that we're studying, because sometimes it's hard to cover those when we explain um, things to parents and even, even our own staff. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a great resource for us to have in terms of things that we can explain right away and say, you know, we have this information on the website if you need more about the study and why we're doing it, so you can use this resource. And also, you know, eventually we would like to have that center as as um as a site to collaborate with other institutions. You know, we're very happy. Uh, 
I was very happy to share protocols. That's the one thing I learned as a researcher. At first, you know, you want to sh- keep your ideas for yourself. You know, you want to be the mm-hmm. one that come up with, with the good studies. Now, there's not much time left. We have to do as much mm-hmm. as we can. The sooner you share the ideas, the better someone might actually find a way to do them. And I'm, I'm more than willing to to share my thoughts on, on some of the research projects that we've done, the limitations, the opportunities. And and I think, you know, a website like that could help us to to share study protocols, you know, without a big commitment. You know, if, if, if someone can do it easily in their center, they could easily have access to our actual study protocol and, and use it as, as they yeah. want. I think the website is very well designed. It has like a page about each one of you guys. And, and it's and I think it, it's to me, that's what it felt like most. It's it lends itself to like. This is a, a group that wants to collaborate, that wants to engage with other groups. So um, again, we'll link into the show descriptions. It, it was, it was. Uh, it's, I think it's a very valuable resource. Daphne, anything to close the show? Yeah, I was going to say no. I it's, it's the the website is extraordinary. It's very easy to use. It's so inviting, comforting. You know, even as a as another physician to to see what you're doing, and it's so important to know what people are working on, right? So we know what to be looking out for, even if it's not our area of interest. And uh, I hope all of our listeners take note about your um, guidance on collaboration, because I think that's the future. That's how we move the needle faster. I think so. Thank you yes. for sharing. We've, we've Loved having yep. you on. It was a lot of fun, Ariel. Thank you for Thank taking you the much. time. And uh, again, we look forward to uh, your s- research being published and all the work you're doing on neonatal nutrition. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Daphna. And please keep bringing more episodes. You know, I always like to hear journal clubs. I like your perspective. I'm also, I didn't tell you this, but I'm, I'm, I like the Bayesian analysis too. <laughs> I think Thank there's you. future there in neonatology. We just need, um, yes, we need to just keep growing. You know, we, we just one by one, we're going to start convincing more people. Over Amazing time. approach all the way. Thank you, Ariel. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUpodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nicu, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.